Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hello, welcome to the final episode in what has been our very first four-episode series, uh, and it has been on on Russia, the recent history of Russia, end of the Soviet Union, rise of Putin, obviously very, very immediate, important subject at the moment. And we have reached the stage where Putin has become president of Russia. So Dominic, the election of 2000, is Putin, I mean, is he a popular figure at this point? Is he well-known or is he a kind of new broom? It's a funny thing. He's unknown. A year earlier, he was unknown. He's, he's a new broom. A year earlier, he was completely unknown. But by, what is it, April 2000, I think it is, um, he is identified with the second Chechen war, which has been a great success from the Russian perspective, because they basically wiped the floor with the, um, as Putin, I think his expression is, he says, we're, we're going to, we've greased the terrorists, I think is his, is his expression. He, he sort of has this, this um, populist way of talking about the war that pleases a lot of ordinary Russians. Um, so just on the Chechen war, there, there is a guerrilla war that goes on for years. There's the Beslan siege. Remember that Tom in, in the school 2004, where Chechen militants took hundreds of people hostage in the theater. And both occasions, the, the Russian, um, armed forces storm the place where the, the people are being held hostage and, and lots of people are killed in the crossfire. Horrific. But Putin ends up winning in Chechnya. Um, so the Chechen guy who they install in the long run is a guy called, Ramzan Kadyrov. Are you familiar with him, Tom? No. He is an absolutely terrible man. Is he the one who's still on the scene now? Yeah. He's, so a, he's the guy who wants to go in and, and murder everyone in Ukraine? He is. Yes, he's sending yes his, I am familiar with him. So with he is an, he's an Instagram beard. addict. He's had, a, he's had a tiff with John Oliver, the American comedy presenter on Instagram. He does have a comedy beard. Uh, his birthday party in 2011 was attended by Jean-Claude Van Damme, uh, Hilary Swank, Seal, and Vanessa May, the violinist. What a, what a party that must have been. Well, um, I, our producer was telling us that John Oliver is English, but I think of him as American. Yeah, he is um, English. He was, uh, he was a com- uh, comedy partner of Andy Zeltzman. I know, but the, he's uh, famous the, in America. The TMS, uh, the Test Match Special scorer. He's not famous in England, is he? Two, well, that's two degrees of separation from Test Match Special to the Chechen warlord. Wow. Well, okay. That's brilliant. So anyway, you actually, the, the question was actually, I was just determined to read my notes about Ramzan. <laughs> um, no, fair enough. That's, but, that was worth it. Uh, but um, the question was actually, how did Putin win? Well, he won on the back of... Because he's fighting uh, a communist, isn't he? Gennady Zyuganov. Well, yes, right. He's fighting... Zyuganov was the guy who... He's, um, Yeltsin beat in 96, and he's also going to run again in 2000, the communist. Uh, Putin is younger. He's the new broom. He's hard. He's won the war. So, of course, people vote for him. He's very, very good at um, – the weird thing is, actually, in 2000, if you look at some of the sort of press commentary in the West, people said, well, maybe he'd be more liberal. You know, obviously, we started the previous podcast with George W. Bush's now, yeah, frankly, blackly ironic, you know, stuff about looking into his soul and inviting him to his ranch because he thought he could trust him. Putin, nobody actually knows what Putin is. Putin is a blank slate um, in, in 2000. But he is lucky. His reign coincides with a sort of uptick in, in oil prices. 
Um, and Russia's going to start to make a lot of money from oil and gas. They've finally reached some degree of economic stability after the chaos of the 90s. Also, a thing that Putin does that isn't appreciated, I think, um, popularly in the West as much as it is, he cracks down on the oligarchs. He does, doesn't he? Very popular. Yes, he does. Uh, so often so people Boris, say Be- now... Be- Boris Berezovsky yeah. is the, the, the notorious one, isn't it? Well, it's notorious because he, was, of course, was found hanged in, I think, 2011. In, and there's always Outside this, Ascot. Like, yeah, there was this, this suspicion about what happened to him. And Kordakovsky also, who you, you mentioned yes, earlier. Yes, exactly. Who was the richest man was, in Russia. He was the richest man in Russia and had been very close to Yeltsin, had known Putin. There were lots of photos of them together, but had dared to criticize Putin and had to argue with him. And basically, Putin has him, um, you know, all of these oligarchs. Sent to a labor camp. Yeah, he's sent to prison for 10 years in Siberia. Yeah, very I mean, just, just absolutely. And then he serves his term and he gets another six years. Yeah, he's eventually, he, Putin pardoned him, I think, in 2014. And basically, well, he's, he's, back, allowed, he's in London as well. Yeah. I mean, so all these, uh, so all these oligarchs flee to London. One of the one of the things that people say of, about Abramovich is that why did Abramovich buy Chelsea? Buying Chelsea was actually a brilliant way of protecting himself. It made him very famous, gave him a bolt hole in London, gave him a place in the kind of British and Western imagination. Oligarch as washing. something other as some yeah as something other than just a kind of the guy who ran Sibneft, and it made him harder to touch. You know, well, it would because be Berikovsky a... takes him to court, doesn't he? In London, Berikovsky did take him. They had a massive strapping over the corpse of it. They were absolutely. So, what actually Putin's reign, in some ways, has represented is the kind of securocrats, the the Siloviks, the Siloviki, as they're called, um, taking power back. So, people who are involved with the, you know the the army, particularly with the intelligence services, they are the people who surround Putin now more than ever. Um, not so much the people with the sort of the, the glitzy yachts who made all their money in the 90s, because there's been a bit of a backlash against mm. them. He's, it's the securocrats who really have taken have, have run the show in the last 20 years. So, so Dominic, one of, I haven't read hugely about this period, but one book that really, really I, sticks in my mind was by um, uh, Peter Pomerantsev, who oh, yes. was actually born in Kiev, I think. Uh, his parents were exiled to Britain. Um, and so he grew up British and then he went to Moscow to work in TV in the early years of Putin's presidency. And he wrote a brilliant book, nothing is true and everything is possible. And his theme essentially is that Putin's power rests on his ability to manipulate reality and that he is bringing the expertise that he has garnered as a KGB officer. And he is recruiting all the people uh, you know all this kind of the 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 security services who've done this quite a lot of the ideologues as well in the soviet period um and they you know essentially he's weaponizing them and pomerantsev points out that when putin becomes president the first things that he essentially gets his claws on it's not the the utilities it's not the oil it's not even the security services it's tv and that he uses tv to create a kind of hall of mirrors and I don't know whether you think that that's a theory that you would go along with. Um, well, you definitely see the Hall of Mirrors now, don't you? I mean, there are accounts, social media accounts on the on online that are, I can't remember the, the name of the guy who's doing it. There's a particular guy who's a Francis something, who's got this incredible account where he tells you what's on Russian TV every night during the Ukraine war. And the parallel world, the parallel reality, um, you know, the fact that basically they're, they're showing pictures of 
Kiev that are look like nothing that's happening now. They're they're fake, basically, or all these sort of things. I mean, you're right. There is a hall of mirrors, and and to some extent, there always has been. But I don't think it's purely that. I think for a lot of Russians, Putin does represent stability and strength. Because if you think about the story that we've told, the eighties and nineties, of course, he represents stability after that utter chaos. And, and so that's that's the importance of his masculinity, the the bare chest and all that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, that's that's all laughable to us, but but to them, better that than Boris not getting off the plane or Gorbachev, you know, um, just sort of lost in his own committees and reading Lenin and everything kind of falling to pieces around him. They see Putin projecting kind of old-fashioned masculine strength, don't they? And I think that obviously has a tremendous a tremendous appeal. Plus, there is this thing, you know, the Weimar parallel that you mentioned right at the beginning, the um, Robert Harris thing. I mean, one of the things that animated Germany in the 1920s and then the 30s was the sense of amputation. You know, there mm-hmm. are all these Germans cut off. Um, and, and Putin and his sort of ideologues, the people who are in this sort of TV hall of mirrors, they... They, they they can say, well, you know, 30% of the population of Estonia when the Soviet Union broke up was Russian-speaking. All these people in eastern Ukraine speak Russian. You know, people in Transnistria and Moldova. I mean, they have they, that's what also what they've weaponized, a genuine sort of sense of grievance about the, the what people see as the mutilation of kind of Russianness and the Russian nation. But also a sense that um, a war can be a kind of source of empowerment that it will make Russians feel good while also, I guess, intimidating them because, you know, you're getting this news footage from Grozny or whatever, and you're thinking, well, if he can do that there, what could he do to us? I mean, that's also, so there's a kind of, you're simultaneously being empowered and intimidated by this. Is that, would that be true? Mm, I suppose that is true. People are frightened of, yeah, people are frightened of Putin. Um, they'd be frightened of him even without a war. Uh, I mean, the war in Crimea, for example, the, the annexation of Crimea, I and mean, there wasn't really a war in Crimea. It was just a sort of, a silent coup, the little green men, and then the annexation. I mean, that was tremendously popular in Russia. Opinion polls showed it was very popular. Um, the 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 war in the Donbass, that's your hall of mirrors because Russians believe that, that they haven't been fighting in the Donbass. They think that it's yeah. purely separatists um, fighting Ukrainian Nazis. I mean, that stuff is crazy. Okay, let's take a quick break, make a cup of tea, maybe have a slug of vodka. And we'll see you after the ads. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008... Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people (laughs) will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. 
Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy, too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics U.S. wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, welcome back to The Rest is History. So Peter Pomerantsev argues that in the noughties, Russian democracy, you know, it's, it's all of, it's, it's, it becomes show business. It becomes a kind of source of entertainment that you allow people on political shows. So you have communists, you know, to appeal to the, the old people and you have, you know, liberals to appeal to the, the nerds and you, ha- you have um, nationalists, you know, who are kind of mad, but, but quite entertaining. But it's like watching the Big Brother house. And yeah. if you go too far, you know, if you start misbehaving, if you start directly threatening Putin, then you'll be voted off the Big Brother house. You know, you, you will just vanish. And yeah. so democracy is degraded into becoming a form of entertainment. And then it just kind of fades away completely. Now, I thought that was, you know, really, really kind of I, fascinating I, take. But the other thing, the other, um, I, I listened to a podcast. Um, Tom. That what? I actually listened to a podcast and it was Jordan Peterson's podcast. Well, oh my God, I can, people are, well, people are either whooping for joy, Tom, well, or, they're, or they're turning off well, right now. And, and he had on uh, a guy called Frederick Kagan, who's a, a military historian, specialist in right. Russia, um, son of a uh, famous classicist. And he, I would guess, is pretty much the opposite of Pomerantsev. So Peter Pomerantsev writes for the LRB, you know, he's very much that that kind of world. Frederick Kagan, I would get, well, I mean, definitely, because he's on a Jordan Peterson podcast, is not the kind of guy who would give his pronouns. Right. But he's you definitely wouldn't give them to Jordan Peterson. But he's basically, he's basically saying the same thing. He's talking about uh, um, Putin's policy in Crimea, and he's he's talking about hybrid warfare, this idea that you – essentially what you're doing is you're creating, again, this idea of a hall of mirrors where nothing is real. You can't be certain what anything is, and his, his aim is to get people – particularly in the West, but also in Ukraine and Russia, to look at the war and to say, well, you know, we don't really know what the truth is. There's probably a bit of this, there's a bit of that, when basically it's just an invasion. And he yeah. he, he produced this astonishing fact that I hadn't realised that the negotiations at Minsk in 2014 to try and kind of arrive at a settlement between Russia and Ukraine, Russia isn't a kind of participant in the in the, the peace talk. It's, it's, it's an arbiter. It's there with France and Germany as an arbiter. Yeah, they're pretending that they're not. You see, that's completely pretending. They're pretending they're not really involved. Yeah. Whereas what's changed this time round is that now Putin is doing it absolutely nakedly. I mean, there's no attempt to to create this kind of hall of. I guess because it's been blown out of the water by the CIA. But well, but there is a hall of mirrors in in Russia. I mean, there is a colossal chasm between what ordinary Russians think about the war and what we think about it. 
um, that did not exist with, for example, when he they went into Georgia in 2008. So that was probably the moment when that was the trial run, if you like, um, the war against Georgia. So George W. Bush, who appeared in the previous podcast, George W. Bush had said, we're thinking about NATO membership for Ukraine and Georgia. You know, they can aspire to it. And at that point, obviously, alarm bells went off in the Kremlin. And the first thing Putin did was go into Georgia just months later. So what happened then, um, you know, brutal war, all the rest of it. But I don't think there was a sense then of, of an iron curtain, as it were. No, but, there, but, but even in 2014, there wasn't. Because there were lots of people in the West who said, oh, well, you know, the Ukrainians are all fascists. That argument yes. that the Ukrainians are fascists, which was absolutely kind of generated by Putin's genius for malevolent propaganda. I mean, not entirely, but definitely yeah. you know, quite significantly. And that played a crucial role in persuading the West not to get too het up about, you know. Yes, I suppose so. I mean, I think that, but also it's the fact that the Russians now are so sealed off. So, you know, it's it's virtually impossible now, I think, for ordinary Russians to get hold of a lot of the sort of, you know, can they listen to this podcast? I don't know. You know, um, they are sealed off in a way they weren't in, in 2014, I suppose. But my question to you, Tom, which I wanted to ask was, um, how is that different? That kind of hall of mirrors telling a story about what you're doing. How is that different from what people would have done in history? I mean, I'm well, it's funny about- you ask that because when I read uh, Pomerantz's book, what what it reminded me of was Augustan Rome. Yeah, uh, the the creation of uh, fantastical stories that kind of almost anaesthetized people who'd emerged from a civil war in a period of absolutely convulsive trauma, and people embraced it and welcomed it. That that you see, do you know? I'm so glad you mentioned that, and it is funny how we because the parallel that's sometimes been in my mind with Putin is. You know, I obviously think Putin is a terrible person and wish him, I mean, I hope listeners won't be offended when I say I, I really do wish him all the worst. But how is, he's on a spectrum and somewhere on that spectrum is Octavian, you know, who becomes Augustus, who obscure, people wait. don't rate him, you know, does deals with the right people, can be utterly ruthless and cold. Well, I think it, the difference is, is that... um Obviously, Octavian, the the murderous terrorist who utilizes war to attain supreme power and then promote himself as a prince of peace, the arc of Putin is the other way, that he's gone from presiding over you know, bit taking in the West, appearing to yeah. be a, a you know a man with Bush looks into his soul and it's good, who is now you know the new Hitler. Yeah, I suppose so. But I suppose, but surely, you know, you think about Octavian and his war, for example, against Antony and Cleopatra, the way that Russian Augustan propaganda. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, what the, the yeah. version they – no Roman would have got a sense of that war as we have of it, would they? I mean, even our sense of the war is co- completely coloured by their propaganda. Yeah, so Putin's completely. propaganda is not unprecedented in history. Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. No. I, I mean, he truly is the third Rome. Yeah. Oh, gosh. That's a that's – a, a depressing thought. I, I told you when we started, you know, I said I've got the flipping piles of notes. And I know I'm, they've got the names of people running, you know, the under minister of tractors. <laughs> yes, in mints. <laughs> that I haven't been able to use. Um, but um, there are some brilliant books on this. There's a book by Serki Plocky, a Ukrainian historian called The Last Empire, I think it is, about Ukraine and the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. There's the book I mentioned last time, Vladislav Zubok's book. And there are two other books, Tom, that I'd like to mention because I think they are absolutely brilliant. They're by the New Yorker editor, David Remnick, and he's talking about 
um, uh, Russia in the late 80s and then in the early 90s. Now, I can remember that the second one is called Resurrection. And I can't actually remember the name of the first one, having said how brilliant they are, but I like to leave the listeners something to do. No, it's not crucifixion. I like to leave the listeners something to do so they Lenin's can look it up for them. It is Lenin's tomb. Yeah. Our producers just, it, that is an absolutely unbelievably good book. Um, so I really recommend that. Um, but and yeah, Dominic, it is would, you go, would you say it's a riddle wrapped in an enigma, wrapped in a mystery? Or... Well, I think that's going back to that kind of thing that we talked about <laughs> in the last podcast, yes. which is about the Russian soul, isn't it? I think there were, I'll tell you the, in the great what if, Tom. I mean, there's, this, this is the great what if of our time. What if the Soviet Union hadn't broken up? Would we be? Would a lot of people? There's an argument. I would. There's a reason. A lot of people who are anti-communists would say, "God, what a what a terrible you know speculation." But there is surely an argument that a lot of people who are now dead would still be alive. Actually, if the Soviet Union had kept going, if let's say Andropov had lived for another ten years and then handed over to somebody more hard-nosed than Gorbachev, that it would still have been a bit repressive and autocratic but it would have moved towards a market economy. Maybe still bad things would have happened, but perhaps not on the scale of the Chechen wars. and the. But well, the... except what I'd say to that is that ever since the fall of the Soviet Union, the one thing that people across the world have been able to uh, draw solace from is the fact that nuclear war between two rival superpowers is unlikely. And perhaps the one of the, well, I think the most unsettling aspect of the current crisis is that, um, Putin is now starting to talk about nu- using nuclear weapons, and one of the disturb, you know, the reason that's disturbing is that people say, "Oh, it's just gamemanship," but <laughs> every threat he's delivered, he has every every threat that he said, he has actually acted on. Yes, there was a brilliant article um, by a woman called Fiona Hill, who's a um, the, the the British exactly uh, soft Russian expert in, in Washington, right? Exactly, the British expert who's recently been involved in all kinds of shenanigans in um, in Washington. And she said, you know, every time people say he won't do this, he does. He it. does. Yeah. And in a way, that's the theme, that's the surprise about Putin, that he's turned out not to be this sort of coldly ruthless chess player. But he looks now more like a gambler whose gambles of succeeded and succeeded and succeeded. And now he's taken the biggest gamble of all. And it'll, as people often say, it'll either end with the destruction of Ukraine or the destruction of himself and his regime. And it's a dark, and it's a dark, quite a dark story, you know. Not just for Ukrainians, is it? But for Russians as well. Right, it is. Yeah, it is. It's a story of. It's it's funny actually because uh, one of the things my son had at Christmas, or, or I got, I was given at Christmas, but he loves it. Is the Private Eye Annual for last year? Mm-hmm. He doesn't understand. He understands about ten percent of twenty percent of the jokes. So we should explain that for people who aren't British that it's it's a kind of uh, satirical magazine. Uh, yeah. It comes out fortnightly about British politics. And I think if you're in any way interested in politics and you're British, it's it's a kind of gateway drug to understanding how politics it is exactly. works. Because you have to work out who the characters are. Yeah. So Arthur loves it. He likes all the jokes about Boris and stuff. Um, but he said to me, he said, gosh, there are a lot of jokes here about Vladimir Putin and you wouldn't be able to do them today because, of course, he's Hitler now. And he was telling me how at school, you know, all the 10-year-olds say he's Hitler all this stuff. This is all, they're all excited and discussing where they're going to hide in the event of a nuclear war and stuff in the way that 10 year olds, <laughs> 10 year old right. boys do. Um, and I sort of thought it, it is, you know, we did that, our very first podcast on the subject of greatness. And in that podcast, we ended by saying, is there anybody who will be regarded as great 
And we talked about Vladimir Putin, certainly his sense of himself as great and Russians, you know, he has, we talked about that sense of greatness that's born of martial prowess, glory, conquest, strength, you know, the projection of the kind of image mm -hmm. of virility that Alexander had and Pompey had and all these, yeah, I don't know, Henry VIII or Napoleon or whatever. And we talked about Putin, but of course, that's not a conversation we'd have in the same way today. Do you think, no. Tom? No, we wouldn't. Um, even though he's uh, what he's doing to the cities in Ukraine is what he'd already done in Syria right, and in course. Chechnya. So, and what commanders have done in history in a way that people pass off in a footnote? Oh, by the way, he leveled this city, he smashed up Corinth, he destroyed Thebes, he and we sort of say, oh, ha ha ha! I know that was another sign of his of his greatness. But actually, when you read that against the news, it makes you think a bit more deeply about the consequences. I think you're being harsh on us as a collective, because I think we did push at those the kind of paradoxes there and the, the, the moral complexities of the idea of greatness. When the war began, I put out a tweet where I said kind of Vladimir Putin, Peter the Great or Anthony Eden. Oh, yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and it got Some quite, people didn't like that. Some people got, were very, very upset by that. Yeah. Uh, I suppose... I wasn't quite sure why they were upset. I suppose the implication that that uh, Putin could in any way be great, but obviously, you know, Peter the Great was great because he he built Russia on the. I mean, you know, in the case of Saint Petersburg, literally on the backs of the bones of those who built this extraordinary city out of the yeah. kind of the mud flats of uh, of the north. But I mean, he killed a lot of people, and yes. Peter the Great like Stalin, is one of the two great heroes of, of Putin. And that is a kind of model of greatness that he's consciously aspiring to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, absolutely. You know, or will he turn out to be anti-Eden, i.e. will he be brought down by sanctions? Well, I mean, I think it's fair to say that we're hopeful, aren't we? But um, the, the, the extraordinary thing is that um, I'm still kind of struggling to get a sense of is the extent to which Russia in the last few days has been cut off behind a, a renewed Iron Curtain. You know, none of these media organizations now working in Russia, so we're not getting the same information we were once getting. Twitter abandoned Russia, so you know we're not getting the same flow of social media. Um, and, and this possibility that actually in the next you know, few months, things will, hap will happen in cities in Russia, and we'll just hear garbled reports of them as we would have once done in the 1980s and actually not know what's happening. People it's are posting um, uh, restaurant reviews, aren't they? Yes, that? yes, I have. Google maps reviews to try and get messages across to russians you're being like also vice versa oh they posting reviews yes, of I, I think so tea rooms so, and still in the world yes help we're being attacked kind of thing oh, all right golly yeah yeah um, i'm sure that'll be clear i mean if we're talking about it on a podcast i'm sure the uh <laughs> the russian security services are onto that do you reckon they listen to this podcast i doubt it i very much doubt yeah. it anyway uh all very depressing it um is. But the story that we told in those four episodes, so I now I now wish, you know, I, I wanted to do that subject for ages, and I, and I slightly wish we'd done it in even more depth, um, because particularly, I think, Russia in the 90s, it was such a crazy period. And, the um, Wild East. The, it was absolutely the Wild East. There were so many, I mean, Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's erstwhile advisor, to now fiercest critic, sort of the, the brains of Brexit, he was in Russia in the 1990s, I think, trying to develop an airline. Isn't, mm. that, isn't that right? He was about, and he was about 10, wasn't he? Yeah. I think he just left university and went straight to Russia in that way that some people did. And some people obviously became incredibly rich. But the combination of that, of the looting and the, and the oligarchs, with the, 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 utter pop, the collapse in living standards, the poverty, but also the insane politics, 
So another thing we didn't massively touch on was the fact that, um, I mean, we talked about it as Weimar, but the, but the political scene in Russia was so extreme. And there was so much anti-Semitism, for example, and fervent kind of nationalism. And one of the really remarkable things is that, the, right, is that in the 90s, all these different political forces kind of coalesced behind this, what you would call, you could call a kind of red-brown, you know, communist stroke fascist um, coalescence, as the, I've used coalesce twice, but there you go. Um, so I was only just seeing yesterday the head of the Communist Party, who we mentioned in the podcast, Gennady Zuganov, he came second to Yeltsin in 96. He gave a press conference yesterday, Tom, yesterday, saying that um, NATO and the Americans have established biological weapons labs in Georgia, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine, just over the border. And they're preparing their biological and chemical weapons to attack the Russian people. And that's why, you know, Putin should go further and go faster kind of thing. And I thought how... But at least he hasn't said put them in the Baltic republics, which would be... No, I suppose that would be terrifying. So, so Dominic, I mean, I'm aware that we're now getting straying into uh, politics and we're... We don't want to do a Rory Stewart analysis to Campbell, no, do we? we? Don't. We don't. But just, just because you know much more about this than me, the, the end game, I mean, what, is there any conceivable end game it's really that you can see? see? Because, I mean, it's obviously gone terribly wrong for Putin. The war's gone wrong, gone badly. Yeah. The economy has been hit much worse than he'd anticipated. There's no, the only way that he can really row back is to kind of say, I got it wrong. And he's never going to do that. He's not going to do that, no. So the only option really seems to be to escalate it, isn't it? And to, to try and get in a kind of fight, fight with NATO. I mean, that's a very, very grim um, way of putting it. I think he... So my reading of it is this. That Putin, like so many people, ended up believing his own propaganda, just being surrounded by people who told him what he wanted to hear. That the West was weak, that Ukraine was basically a complete shambles and a Frankenstein's monster of a country. And do you think he really thought that they were a bunch of Nazis? I mean, he's literally saying about a state led by a Jewish president. I mean, that's crazy, that Nazis. isn't it? I think there's a bit of him. It's, it's impossible to say, isn't it? Did, did, did Hitler believe all the mad things that Hitler... Yes, I think he did, didn't he? I suppose he did. Did Stalin? Yes. You end up believing it yourself, don't you? I mean, this is the thing with politicians. You end up... Part of you knows... Part of you knows that some of it is contrived, exaggerated, all of that stuff. But you end up convincing yourself, especially if you've got you're in an echo chamber where other people just articulate your prejudices to you. Or is it an illustration of my thesis that Hitler has become the devil and that your enemies, if you're in a kind of Manichaean, yeah. know, good and evil, uh, yeah. light and dark, your enemies have to be Nazis because well, that's that, the only that's, possible that, justification. That's absolutely true in Russia because what's happened in Russia in the last 20 years is the Second World War. I mean, God, think how much we beat ourselves up in Britain about this. Uh, the Second World War has become a stifling kind of national myth. So everything is seen through that prism. Um, and, and in a way, yeah, they, they now, even if there's no evidence of Nazism whatsoever. I mean, by the way, there are, there are far-right extremists in Ukraine, but they are such a minority on the political spectrum. They don't even hold, I think, any seats in the Ukrainian parliament. No, and, the, and, so, and to repeat... Zelensky is Jewish. Their president is Jewish. I mean, their seems... president is a, is, is, is a Russian speaker and is Jewish. Exactly, Tom. And I mean, so that so part of the um, the kind of the paradoxical horror of what's happening is that the Russians are um, they, they've become their worst nightmares. So they are, they are you know they're making Stalingrads yeah. out of Ukrainian cities in which they are playing the part of the Germans. They are indeed, and they're laying siege to Kiev as the Mongols laid siege to it. Well, and so they're answers. playing the part of the Mongols. Yeah, agreed. So, I, I mean, I, it's I a terrible situation. Anyway, them. you asked about the end game. Sorry, Tom, I didn't. I, I, I rambled and didn't answer. You asked about the end game. 
Putin is now in a position where when he wakes up in the morning and thinks about his options, continuing fighting is probably his least worst option as he sees it. He can't stop and say it was all a mistake. He can't really declare victory and go home, I don't think. Um, there's almost no way back for him now with the West. It's hard to see. You know, it's not like he can say, he can say sorry, I've made a mistake and people <laughs> will relax the sanctions. I mean, that's not really how it works. I think he thinks I will just power through. He perhaps thinks there'll be a if there's a change of administration in America, you know, if the, the West will lose interest, um, people get bored, I'll present them with a fait accompli. I mean, he's no stranger to frozen conflicts as well. So Georgia, Transnistria, places like that, where basically the Russians are still there, but it's just sort of, there's just a stalemate in these places. So perhaps he thinks, I'll just keep fighting. It'll end up being a stalemate in Ukraine forever and ever. And eventually I'll get what I want because they'll lose interest and, and all this stuff. I mean, the problem he'll have is is losses of troops. You know, and it's loss also of money. so expensive, losses of money. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the trouble is a lot of young Russians have been connected, haven't they, to the sort of world network. I mean, just even small things like they're not going to get Netflix. They're not going to get the new cinema releases. They're not going to get Apple products. They're not going to get all these things. And of course, these are all kind of middle class things. But often the middle class is the very people who drive revolutions and regime changes. Sorry, this is a very morbid end of the podcast, Tom. Um, well, it's a morbid subject, isn't it? It I is mean, a morbid you know, subject. It's hard not to feel. So we should be back. It. We should be back, hopefully, with more um, jolly material. Um, maybe Tom will do some impersonations next time to cheer us up. Um, <laughs> and uh, on that note, we'll say thank you for listening. Goodbye. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com.